0: The Good and Beautiful Life How to Get the Most Out of This Book This book is intended to be used in the context of a community, a small group, a Sunday school class, or a few friends gathered in a home or coffee shop. Working through this book with others greatly magnifies the impact. If you go through this on your own, only the first four suggestions below will apply to you. No matter how you use it, I am confident that God can and will accomplish a good work in you. 1. Prepare Find a journal or notebook with blank pages. You will use this journal to answer the questions sprinkled throughout each chapter and for the reflections on the soul-shaping experience found at the end of each chapter. 2. Read. Read each chapter thoroughly. Try not to read hurriedly and avoid reading the chapter at the last minute. Start reading early enough in the week so you have time to digest the material. 3. Do. Complete the weekly exercise. Engaging in exercises related to the content of the chapter will help deepen the ideas you are learning and will begin to mold and heal your soul. Some of the exercises will take more time to complete than others. Be sure to leave plenty of time to do the exercise before your group meeting. You want to have time not only to do the exercise, but also to do the written reflections. 5. Reflect. Make time to complete your written reflections. In your journal, go through all the questions of each chapter. This will help you clarify your thoughts and crystallize what God is teaching you. 5. Interact. Come to the group prepared to listen and to share. If everyone takes time to journal in advance, the group's conversation will be much more effective. It is important to remember that we should listen twice as much as we speak, but do be prepared to share. The other group members will learn from your ideas and experiences. 6. Encourage. Interact with each other outside of group time. Use technology to stay in touch. Send an encouraging email to at least two others in your group between meeting times. Let them know you are thinking of them, and ask how you can pray for them. Building strong relationships is a key factor in making your experience a success. Chapter 1. The Good and Beautiful Life The meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we have grown used to thinking, in prospering, but in the development of the soul. Alexander Solzitian. One summer I worked as an intern chaplain at a retirement center. It was a pretty easy job. The residents were all in good enough health not to need constant care. They seemed to enjoy living together, kind of like a college dorm experience for people with gray hair, wrinkles, and a lot of wisdom. I saw smiling faces everywhere I went. In our daily chapel, a woman named Gladys played a hymn. I gave a short devotion, and we ended with one more hymn and a benediction. The rest of the day, the residents spent thinking about their children and grandchildren, having tea, or shooting pool. It was a pretty nice job. Sipping tea with grandmothers and shooting pool with grandfathers was not a bad way to spend a summer. Mostly I mingled during social times, but occasionally someone would request a visit from me. One day, my supervisor handed me a slip that said, Ben Jacobs, room 116, requests a visit from a chaplain. She looked at me and said, good luck with this one, Jim. Her tone told me that she knew I was up for a difficult afternoon. "'What could be tough about this?' I asked myself as I made my way to Ben's room. I knocked on the door, and a deep voice bellowed, "'Come in, young man.' Ben sat in his rocker, with a shawl around his legs, wearing a blue cardigan and a button-down shirt. He had grey hair, a well-trimmed beard, and very severe features, large, deeply set eyes, and a very long, thin nose. He looked serious and important, and like one who would not be crossed. "'Good afternoon, Ben,' I said, reaching out my hand to shake his. "'Sit down, son.' He said, matter of factly, without shaking my hand. For the next half an hour, we talked about philosophy and world religions. I was not sure if he wanted to test me to see if I was intelligent and well read, or if he just wanted to impress me. He certainly did impress me. He knew a great deal about very sophisticated matters in religion and philosophy. We engaged in a debate over which philosopher was the best. I suspected, however, that he did not want to debate philosophy, but I was not sure what he really wanted. After a while, he said, Well, you must have much to do. I will let you go now. Good day. This time, he did shake my hand, and as I left the room, he said, Would you please come back tomorrow? For the next six days, I went to room 116 and talked with Ben, and each day he opened up a little more, sharing more about his life in bits and pieces. Then, on the seventh visit, I discovered Ben's main intention. He wanted someone to confess to. Not any one sin, Ben wanted to confess to having lived a bad life. Surprisingly, his life, according to many, was really not so bad. Some might even say he lived well. I was born in 1910. I made my first million by 1935. I was 25 years old. By the age of 45, I was the richest man in my state. Politicians wanted to be my friend. I lied, cheated, and stole for whomever I could. My motto was simple, take all you can from whoever you can. I amassed wealth and everyone was impressed with me. I had a lot of power in those days. I had 2,000 employees and all of them looked up to me or were afraid of me. Money was really all I cared about. I had three wives, all who left me, either because of neglect or because they caught me in one of many affairs. I have one daughter, who is now in her forties, but she refuses to speak to me. Ben paused to look at me, to see if I was judging him. I wasn't. Oh, I was somewhat stunned. He looked so grandfatherly in his cardigan sweater. He looked nothing like the kind of person who could have lived such an ambitious, selfish, even sinful life. He went on. I suppose you could say that I ruined my life, because today I have nothing, really. Oh, I still have a lot of money. I still have more money than I could ever spend, but that brings me no joy. I sit here each day, waiting to die. I have nothing but bad memories. I cared about no one in my life, and now no one cares about me. You, young man, are all that I have. Everyone wants to be happy. Some of us are introverts. Some are extroverts. Some of us like cats. Others like dogs. Some of us like to take risks. Others play it safe. Each of us is unique, but there is one thing that every one of us has in common. Everyone wants to be happy. No one seeks a dull, lifeless, boring, meaningless life. I have never met a person whose goal was to ruin his or her life. We all want to be happy, and we want it all of the time. And we want it for those we love. Recently, there was a poll taken that asked this simple question. What did your parents want most for you? Success, wealth, to be a good person, or happiness? 85% said happiness. Ben wanted to be happy. He never set out to live a sad, joyless life. Ben did not decide, I think I will make a series of selfish decisions in an attempt to ruin my life. He thought he was pursuing happiness. Ben was pursuing happiness, joy, contentment, and prosperity, just as all of us do all the time. The problem is, Ben had adopted a set of ideas about what success and happiness are, and they were all wrong. He was simply obeying a false narrative about what constitutes a good and happy life. His dominant narrative, like all dominant narratives, dictated his behavior and justified the outcomes. No one ends up in a situation like Ben's all at once. It takes a long time to ruin a life. It all starts with the stories we live by. To be sure, in our day there is a difference between being happy and being joyful. Happiness is a temporary condition based on our circumstances. Joy is an inner disposition not based on external circumstances and therefore not subject to change. The old devotional writers, notably people like John Wesley, used happiness to describe the good and virtuous life. True happiness meant that a person was also good. Wesley said famously, you cannot be happy without being holy. This is the sense I am using happy to describe the good life. False narrative. Happiness comes from following the principles of this world. If you watch an hour of primetime television, you will be subtly introduced to the world's values. Twenty minutes will be filled with commercials for various products, from hair care to hotel chains to tires. Indirectly, the narrative says something like this, happiness comes from sex, money, and power. A bikini-clad woman stands next to a set of tires, implying that women will be attracted to a man who buys those tires. Or a handsome man looks very content as he enjoys his stay in a five-star hotel. The point is clear, expensive luxuries will make you happy. All of these narratives are false, meaning they are built on half-truths or outright lies. When we adopt them they slowly destroy our souls ben lived by these false narratives he amassed a lot of wealth had a great deal of power and engaged in a lot of meaningless sexual activity all behavior is based on a narrative positively our cultural narrative can be stated a number of different ways look out for number one you only go around once so take all you can all is fair in love and war these are commonly used to justify immoral or unethical behavior negatively our cultural narrative says don't suppress desire all desires are good rules are made to be broken don't be confined by your commitments nice guys finish last these were the narratives Ben lived by which ultimately left him sad and lonely captive to the memories of hurting others in his quest for happiness Ben told me that he was intrigued by Jesus but found his teachings impossible to live by he told me that he assumed that if he tried to obey Jesus's commands he would find life boring constrictive and unpleasant He assumed that Jesus would make him a weak failure. How to ruin your life without even trying In Romans 1, 18-32, Paul describes how a human life spirals into ruin. Written 19 centuries before the advent of modern psychology, Paul's assessment of the human person remains the most brilliant depiction of soul destruction I have ever read, Perhaps you will want to read Romans 1, 18-32 in your own Bible, in its entirety, but for now I would like to summarize his ideas in what I call the six steps of ruin, the process of becoming nothing. Number one, the turn away. I want to be God. The first step toward ruin is to refuse to let God be God. To be more specific, it is refusing to give honor and reverence to God. Paul writes, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Romans 1, verse 21. Step two. The mind darkens. Now, if there is a God, as Christians suppose, then that God is the creator of all, the only being, that exists without a first cause, a perfect and powerful being. In short, if there is a God, we ought to honor and give thanks to God. Therefore, refusing to do that, step one, is a step away from reality. It goes against the truth of the universe. Therefore, our minds, which thrive on truth and reality, become dimmed. Paul observes, They became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Romans 1, verses 21 22. Step 3 Idolatry. We must have a God. If we reject God, then something must take God's place. Nature abhors a vacuum. Someone or something must take the place of God. We would like a God who would do a a lot of good for us and ask very little in return. The solution? Create an idol. Paul describes the next step downward. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Romans 1.23 Idols do not have to be little images. They can be anything we invest our lives in in order to gain pleasure, happiness, and a false sense of purpose. Here is the key. The idol serves us by giving us our desires, and we serve it by sacrificing our life energy to it. Step 4. God leaves us alone. Wrath. Unless we discover the futility of its existence and turn back to God, we are forced to push forward in our idolatry. Being rejected, God has no other choice. Paul delivers what I consider to be one of the most frightening verses in Scripture. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Romans 1.24 God simply lets us be. God's wrath is his righteous stand against sin, which he cannot endorse. Step 5 pleasure is pursued at all costs. Disconnected from reality and on our own, we must find a way to find fulfillment. Though temporary, the easiest route is through our bodies. Lust and gluttony are shortcuts to happiness, but the high that comes from our bodies, through drugs, alcohol, food, sexual encounters, pornography, has a constantly diminishing effect. Each time we engage in these activities, the pleasure decreases, thus requiring greater frequency or greater quantities to match the level of pleasure sought. Paul puts it this way. For this reason god gave them up to degrading passions romans 1 26 the initial lusts of their hearts has now turned into degrading passions step six sin reigns the final step is the worst and is a natural conclusion to the previous five steps sin and wickedness become normative automatic behavior When we reject God and consequently try to replace God with things that cannot satisfy, we naturally begin to reflect everything that stands against God, namely, sin. Paul offers a list that, though ancient, is descriptive of many today. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness, They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Romans 1, verses 28 to 31. Each day when I pick up the newspaper, I see Paul's depiction of the downward spiral lived out in the modern world, politicians using their power improperly, rape, murder, arson, runaways, gangs, drug dealers, prostitution, and so on. It all starts with that fatal first step that same step by which adam and eve fell from god in the garden refusing to show respect and thankfulness to god that step begins a movement away from a good and beautiful life and ends in a life of sin and ugliness sin is ugly virtue beautiful sin has many defenders and no defense sin is ugly it is the opposite of beauty When I see a man leering at a woman, it makes me cringe. Anger can be ugly. When I see someone become enraged, it is unsightly. Worrying is unbecoming, and judging others is repulsive. When I hear someone saying terrible things about another, I feel ill. Pride and prejudice, deception and degradation, all are ugly. When I see these in others, it is clearly unattractive. But when I see them in myself, I am quick to rationalize and minimize them. Despite its ugliness and destructiveness, sin still manages to lure us into its illusion of happiness. In contrast, virtue, not the outward appearance but the inner reality of a heart that loves goodness, is beautiful. When I see someone tell the truth, though it hurts them, it is lovely. When man treats a woman not as an object but as a person, I see beauty. A person who does a good deed in secrecy is a marvel and wonder. In the seven-story mountain thomas merton describes his life of sin and his eventual turning to god in his early years he despised and ridiculed the word virtue which had come to mean prudery practiced by hypocrites but merton discovered that virtue the power that comes from moral excellence is the only way to the good life without virtue there can be no happiness because virtues are precisely the powers by which we can come to acquire happiness Without them, there can be no joy, because they are the habits which coordinate and provide an outlet for our natural energies, and direct them to the harmony and perfection and balance, the unity of our nature with itself and with God, which must, in the end, constitute our everlasting peace. Sin is always ugly, and genuine virtue is always beautiful. Sin leads to ruin, virtue to greater strength. And this is why everyone, even atheists, love Jesus. Jesus was pure virtue, He lived a good and beautiful life, which he is calling his apprentices to live. A virtuous person is a light to everyone around them. I met such a person a few years ago, and he is still having an impact on me. A Life Well Lived In the summer of 2006, I had the privilege of meeting one of my heroes, legendary UCLA basketball coach John Wooden. Coach Wooden still holds many records that may never be broken, He won 10 NCAA basketball championships, the last one in 1975. No other coach has had more than four. During one streak, his teams won 88 straight games. No other team has won more than 42. He coached some of the greatest players ever to play the game, Bill Walton, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He is thought by many to be not merely the greatest basketball coach of all time, but the greatest coach of any sport in any era. To this day, his former players call him, often once a week, to tell him they love him, to thank him for how he influenced their lives, and to seek his advice in all areas of life. Though he is revered for his success as a coach, his winning record did not make Coach Wooden who he is. During the afternoon I spent with him, I asked him the secret to his life. He said, "'Jim, I made up my mind in 1935 to live by a set of principles, and I never wavered from them. They are based on the Bible and the teachings of Jesus.' Principles like courage and honesty and hard work, character and loyalty, and virtue and honor, these are what constitute a good life. For three hours, I wrote down nearly everything he said. I watched him as he engaged in conversation with my then 14-year-old son Jacob, treating him as if he were the only person in the room. Jacob's eyes were wide as he stared at John's memorabilia. Baseball, signed by legends such as Mickey Mantle, Derek Jeter, and John Torre, all saying things like, To Coach Wooden, you were my inspiration. John Wooden found the right way to live, and he lived it every day. He fell in love with and remained devoted to Nelly, his wife, 53 years when they were young. On the first day of basketball practice, he spent the first hour teaching his players how to put their socks on properly. Not doing so, John said, would lead the blisters. He was teaching his players an important life principle. Do even the small things well. He told his players to acknowledge the player who passed the ball to them when they scored. The practice of pointing to the player who assisted in scoring started at UCLA. Wooden told his players, "'Discipline yourselves so others won't have to. "'Never lie, never cheat, never steal. "'Earn the right to be proud and confident.'" John has lived an amazing life. His love for his beloved wife and for Jesus seemed to fill the room. He smiles infectiously, laughs easily, and is genuinely humble. He is glad to be alive, able to see his children and grandchildren, but he told me he is ready to move on to the next life so he can be with Jesus and his beloved Nellie. John has lived a wonderful life, Better than I deserved, he told me. But the truth is that he has lived the kind of life we are meant to live, based on truth, virtue, and integrity, a life leading to true happiness. John Wooden has lived a good and beautiful life. You may have noticed that John was born in 1910. That was the same year Ben was born. They lived through the same century together, witnessed the Depression, two world wars, economic suffering and prosperity, and over a dozen presidents. They lived in the same country, though on different coasts. Neither one started out with a greater or lesser advantage, yet the difference in their lives was stark. What was the difference? Ben lived his life under an illusion, a false narrative about life and happiness, which ruined his life. He lived his final days in fear of death. John arranged his life around truth, around the teachings of Jesus, an accurate narrative about what constitutes a good life. By following this narrative, he lived a glorious life, is content and looking forward to a radiant future with Christ. Ben built a life on shifting sand. John built his life on the strong rock of Jesus. I want to be clear that God did not bless John because he did good deeds. John's good deeds led to a virtuous life, which is its own reward. God does not mete out blessings and curses based on our behavior alone. If that were so, all bad people would suffer and all good people would be blessed. But there is a life of joy and peace that only those who follow God can know. Neither John nor Ben are normal in that both achieved extraordinary success in life. Both were exceptional in their own ways but you and I are no less exceptional. Each day we make decisions that move us closer to a life of virtue or vice. We face decisions whether to be greedy or generous, self-centered or self-sacrificing, condemning or forgiving, cursing or blessing. While Ben and John were not average everyday people, their souls are no different than ours. No matter who we are, we must choose the narrative we will practice daily. Jesus' Narrative John Wooden became a Christian at a young age and built his life around Jesus' teachings. Jesus' narrative goes like this. The good and beautiful life is created by doing the things I commanded, not as laws or rules, but as a new way of life. Jesus states this narrative at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Later, we will examine that sermon very carefully, but I want to begin by looking at how Jesus ends his teaching. After giving the most profound sermon the world has ever heard, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Matthew 7, verses 24-27. to All who take Jesus' words to heart and arrange their lives around them will be like a person who builds a house on a rock, never to be shaken, even in the storms and floods. In contrast, those who refuse to listen and obey build their house on sand. When the storms of life come, they can be sure that their house will collapse. What words is Jesus referring to when he says, hears these words and acts on them? The Sermon on the Mount. He is talking about his command not to be ruled by anger or lust or deception not retaliating or worrying, and not judging people. Strangely, many Christians simply ignore these teachings, seeing them as too hard or perhaps not necessary for the ordinary person. This book is built around the Sermon on the Mount. The aim is to help Christians understand and implement the teachings of Jesus about things like anger, lust, lying, worrying, pride, and judging others. What Jesus teaches about these things is simply the truth, Living according to his teachings leads to a good life, a life that can withstand the storms and trials we all face. Disobeying his teachings leads to a life of ruin. Jesus is not making life more difficult, but is revealing that the way to the good and beautiful life is to obey his teachings. There is no other way. Either our lives conform to his teachings, or we fail to live a good and beautiful life. Maps and Lighthouses Years ago, Gordon Livingston was a young lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne Division, trying to orient himself during a field exercise at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He writes, "'As I stood studying a map, my platoon sergeant, a veteran, approached. "'You figure out where we are, lieutenant?' he asked. "'Well, the map says there should be a hill over there, but I don't see it,' I replied. "'Sir,' he said, "'if the map don't agree with the ground, then the map is wrong. "'Even at the time, I knew I had just heard a profound truth. "'Maps attempt to tell us the way things really are,' The closer a map comes to matching reality, the better it is. The same is true with our narratives. Some narratives are simply wrong. Other narratives, particularly those of Jesus, are exceedingly accurate, perfect even. We can easily tell the accuracy of the map by comparing it to the terrain it depicts. Lieutenant Gordon learned a great truth. If the map does not agree with the ground, the map is wrong. The ground is never wrong. Narratives, too, try to guide us, to orient us, to tell us which way to turn. But if the narrative does not agree with actual life, then the narrative is wrong. The false narrative Ben lived by proved inaccurate. It told him this is the way to the good life, but he ended up with a ruined life. The problem, then, is not with life, but with the narrative. Jesus's narrative, in contrast, matches reality. No one has ever followed his teachings and been disappointed. No one has ever put his teachings into practice and found them false. His instructions perfectly coincide with reality. We will not find the good life any other way than by obeying Jesus we must conform to his way. One dark and stormy evening, a ship with a proud captain was heading directly into an oncoming ship. The other ship signaled, turn around, but the proud captain refused. He signaled the other ship to get out of his, get out of his way. After all, he was a famous captain piloting an important ship. The other ship signaled again, turn around, now. Again, the captain refused, signaling, no, you must turn. This ship is the SS Poseidon, and I am Captain Franklin Moran. Finally, the other ship signaled, "'Turn now. This is the lighthouse, and you are about to hit the rocks. Certainly, we are free to live our own way. So is a captain, free to deny the light from the lighthouse and do what he wants. He is not free, however, from the rocks. Reality is what we smack into when we are wrong. We should read the Sermon on the Mount this way. Jesus is not demanding we live his way in order to get his blessing or get into heaven when we die. He is simply telling the truth about reality.' He warns against lust, not because he is a prude, but because he knows it destroys human lives when unchecked. He tells us not to worry, not because it will give us ulcers, but because people who live with him in the kingdom of God need not worry. It is a waste of time. Lust and worry, judgment and anger, retaliation and pride are never good or beautiful and never lead to freedom. In fact, they are a flight from freedom. We cannot find happiness or joy apart from a life of obedience to the teachings of Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. God is not being stingy and withholding joy apart from our obedience. There simply is no joy apart from a life with and for God. God, please give me happiness and peace, we plead, but let me also live my life as I please. And God answers, I cannot give you that. You are asking for something that does not exist. The cost of non-discipleship. Spiritual formation and discipleship cause many people to think about the high cost involved in developing a deeper life with God. Gone will be a life of pleasure, a life filled with laughter and fun. Entertainment, watching movies, eating delicious food, surfing the net, and playing games with friends will all have to be taken out of our lives. This is far from the truth. Those who follow Jesus do not have to live austere, sad, and sour lives. In fact, the opposite is true. Christ followers experience the highest form of pleasure. Laugh with depth and enjoy all of the goodness life has to offer. Kingdom dwellers are simply more discriminant about how they seek entertainment and pleasure. They trust in a good and beautiful God who has come not to rob them of joy, but to bring them real and lasting joy, the kind found when moderation and boundaries are applied. The idea that following Jesus' teaching will lead to a boring life is one of the most effective narratives employed by the enemy of our souls. Satan and his minions know all too well that real joy is found only in obeying Jesus' commands. But with a twist here and there and the help of well-meaning but misguided religious folk the christian life can be portrayed as a holy bummer the devil wants people to fear the high cost of discipleship but in reality the cost of non-discipleship is much higher dallas willard explains non-discipleship costs abiding peace a life penetrated throughout by love faith that sees everything in light of god's overriding governance for good hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances Power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life that Jesus said he came to bring. The question is not, what will I have to give up to follow Jesus? But rather, what will I never get to experience if I choose not to follow Jesus? The answer is clear. We will forfeit the chance to live a good and beautiful life. Always we begin again, Ben reprised. Before the summer ended, during one of our many conversations, I ended up telling Ben that the only way to live was to follow Jesus, and Ben did not offer much resistance to my statement. Jesus, he said, was brilliant, but he said it was too late for him. He had messed up his life, and at the age of 75, was beyond redemption. I explained that redemption was God's favorite activity, regardless of age. During the rest of the summer, we met each day, and every session became more and more joyful. We read the Gospels together and talked about mercy and forgiveness and the opportunity to change. By the end of the summer, and when it was time for me to leave, Ben offered me a very special gift, a rare copy of an old book he knew I loved. Then he told me that he had decided to follow Jesus, had asked for forgiveness, and somehow, in a strange way, felt that God had forgiven him. He showed me a letter he had written to his daughter, asking for her forgiveness. The book was a wonderful gift, but the change I saw in his life over the course of a summer was the best gift of all. The last time I heard about Ben came when his daughter wrote to me, telling me that Ben had died at age 88. She said they had reconciled and Ben had come to a saving faith. She said he spent his last years a changed man. Apparently, Ben told her about our summer sessions and had asked her to pass on his gratitude. Ben did not live a radiant life, at least for the first 75 years, but he was changed and experienced a decade of devotion to God. According to his daughter, Ben died a radiant death. When I think about Ben, I think about how change is not only possible, but mandatory. Every day we must begin anew. Though the past is written in stone and cannot be changed, the future is like wet cement, pliable, smooth, and ready to be affected by what we do. No one is past redemption. All of us have the chance, no matter what we have done or where we have been, to change our minds, hearts, and behavior, and to follow the wisest and most loving teacher who, have, who has ever walked this earth. Each day, Jesus says to each of us, come, follow me. If we say yes, we can be sure that a good and beautiful day awaits us, and when we string those days together into months, years, and decades, we will have lived a good and beautiful life, and that life is destined to echo a benediction of love for all of eternity to hear. Soul Training Writing a Letter to God I would like you to write a letter to God that begins with, Dear God, the life I most want for myself is... The rest of the letter will complete this opening statement or prayer. You may want to acknowledge the mistakes you have made, but try to describe in the rest of your letter what a good and beautiful life would look like for you. Will it involve a major life change? Will it demand a new set of friends? Will it involve changing old narratives and habits? Feel free to dream big. Let God in on your greatest hopes. Be sure to keep this letter in a safe place. You will likely want to read it at least once a year to be reminded of the vision you and God have for your life. Let it be a guide and an inspiration. If you feel comfortable, you may share it with someone you trust. If you are working through this book with a group of people, you may want to share your letter with them, but you're not required to do so. My experience has been that this is a great encouragement to everyone in the group. Reflecting on your soul training exercises. Whether you are going through this material alone or with others, the following questions will help as as you reflect on your experience. Record your answers in your journal. If you are meeting with a group, bring your journal to remind you of your insights as you share your experiences with others. 1. Describe the letter you wrote this week and how you feel about it. 2. What did you learn about God or yourself through the exercise? 3. If you feel comfortable, share your letter with others.